Hey guys, a warm and cordial welcome to the latest episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a show that each week continues to seek out and examine in depth the unfamiliar and obscure crimes, both solved and unsolved ones, to highlight from all corners of the UK and Ireland. As ever, I'm your host Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. You guys are the enthusiasts that I look forward to joining me each week, and I hope that you're all fine and well and had a good start to 2019. Now as usual it's a busy week for the show this one because not only does today bring part two in this series' trilogy yes I've decided to do a trilogy each series from now on we did the one-legged train spotter last series and it's car stairs for this one so part two of that is released today plus for Patreon supporters bonus episode number 13 is all ready to go and will be released tomorrow on the 1st of February. Thanks very much to all of the show's Patreon supporters, with big shouts going out to new supporters Marie Paris, Amy Ahern, James Chang, Brian E. Guerin, Richard Wilson, A.R. Foytswaggle, Russell Tudge, Chris McCullough, Joe Warren and Dean Sanders who's edited his pledge. And apologies if I've mispronounced anybody's names there also. Thanks so much guys, there'll be stuff on the way for some and I hope that you've had a chance to catch up with the previous 12 bonus episodes that come with being a Patreon supporter, plus I hope you've enjoyed them of course. Episode 13 that's coming out tomorrow is a proper find and it's a remarkable case that I'd never come across before and I was really chummed between a choice of two. This one just shadowed it but the other one well, that's saved for another time anyway. And you guys can join these guys as well as a supporter for less each month than it costs to steal two supermarket trolleys. I know that's a strange um, illusion, but it's the only thing I could kind of think of. And it's very simple. The link to the show Patreon page is with the show notes and social media contact details. You can head there or you can seek out the show on the Patreon site. And you too could soon be hearing tales such as the Ambleside Red Scarf murder, the War That Comes Home, or the Bravo 2 Heroes. They're all there for supporters, amongst others. Now I'll be back including some promos for other shows in a couple of weeks, because it's been a while, and there are several out there, new and noteworthy, that I'm very happy to promote. It's a lovely way, I think, in how the true crime community runs, and they can support one another. So I'm getting the list together, and listen out for those starting again soon. But before all that, we have a goddamn trilogy to undertake, and this episode brings the most complex and in-depth part of it. I also think it's up there certainly with the most shocking, and quite possibly the longest episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast that I've written to date. Last week on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, we heard the tale of Ian Simpson, the gnome who spoke to God, as I entitled this tale. But I did say that it was part one of a quite extraordinary story that we shall call the Scottish Chain of Ten, and its Simpson's crimes were links number one and two in. If you haven't already heard Simpson's story, then it's probably worth going back before you start this episode and catching up. I mean, they can both stand as standalone tales, but when I start referring to murder number three in the chain and onwards, then you may find yourself at a bit of a loss. Plus, I'll refer quite a bit to last week's episode, so it's best to be in the know firsthand. And to be honest, anyway, who starts anything at the second episode of two? So last week, we were introduced to the state hospital in Scotland, Carstairs. We heard of its history, its location, its structure and its facilities. And we also heard somewhat of the contingency measures that are in place should an escape ever be made by a patient from the facility. 
I mentioned the two-tone alarm system that's in place that's monthly maintenance tested, and I mentioned that locals in the vicinity who've lived there for many years will undoubtedly recall the reason for such an implementation. It stems from a tale that begins with the actions of a disturbed young soldier more than 50 years ago now, that ultimately led to a shocking and gruesome episode one night in Carstairs in November 1976, an event that was to have repercussions even still a couple of years later, and led to the horrific actions of one man in a case of, anything you can do, I can do better. As ever on the show, this week's episode contains descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so discretion is advised as always. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for the second part of the Carstairs Trilogy, The Scottish Chain of Ten Part 2, A Soldier, His Friend and His Father. So as I mentioned, last week on the show I brought the tale of Ian Simpson and how he's considered by many to be the most remarkable patient ever to reside at Carstairs. And he is proper up there, isn't he? But I don't think that he's the most infamous patient to ever have resided there. I believe that title goes to a man who is still today incarcerated in the prison system after more than 50 years because of the magnitude of his crimes and who after his and another man's actions one evening in November 1976, hasn't actually spent a second in Carstairs for more than 42 years. Yet the legacy of his actions there lives on, and it's widely regarded as the facility's most infamous episode. It was an episode that brought to the fore a name that has now become infamous throughout Scottish criminal history, as it's one that will forever relate to eight brutal and bloody deaths in total over a period of more than 10 years. The surname in question is Moan. If it's a name you're unfamiliar with, then I'm sure after this tale, it's one that you won't forget. Robert Francis Moan Jr. was born in the city of Dundee in Scotland in June 1948. A child of above-average intelligence, Moan was from a young age lonely and introverted, struggling to make friends and finding relationships awkward. He had a few girlfriends through his adolescence, but none of these relationships lasted more than a few weeks at a time. Moan simply didn't have the skills in place to make relationships last that are based and developed from a happy family life, because he'd never had much of one. His mother Mary had deserted the family in the 1950s when Robert was very young, anxious to get away from her bullying drunken husband Robert Sonny Moan Sr. and taking Robert's two sisters with her. Deprived of a wife to batter, because this is the kind of guy this Sonny Moan is, turned his attentions to Robert, who he regularly abused and battered in between the frequent prison sentences he served for petty theft and assaults. We shall come back to Sonny Moan much later in the tale. To compound this misery, from the age of 12, Robert was also sexually abused for a period of time by a middle-aged neighbour. So perhaps unsurprisingly then, with such a horrendous sounding home life, Moan's schooling record was appalling, where despite his obvious intelligence, he massively underachieved and was a disruptive pupil. At St John's Roman Catholic Secondary School in Dundee, where Moan attended for three years from 1959, he was assessed as being virtually unteachable, with one former teacher of his going so far as to say when recalling Moan, It was like having a live hand grenade in the classroom. 
Moan himself was to allude later to severe physical and alleged sexual abuse that occurred at the hands of the Marist brothers at the school. He hated it there and was eventually expelled in 1962 due to his disruptive behaviour. After his expulsion, Moan spent several years in an approved school in London, following his release from which an increasingly disturbed and damaged Moan decided to have one last attempt at making something worthwhile out of his life and decided to enlist in the army when he turned 18 in 1966. Moan enlisted in the Gordon Highlanders Regiment of the Army and following completion of his basic training was posted to Messen in Germany to serve with his unit. It was whilst in Germany, as was the accepted culture within the armed services at the time, that Moan began to heavily use alcohol. He was briefly attached to the provost staff not long after his enlistment and he was interested in a career in this branch of the army, but by his own account many years later, his hopes of a provost career were dashed, and he was also ostracised by the rest of his unit when he was asked to sign statements that would have resulted in the court-martial and eventual discharge of two soldiers of superior rank to him. Moan had agreed to do this, believing that he was doing the right thing, but the court-martial ultimately never happened. But the perceived breach of loyalty wasn't forgotten by the rest of his unit, and as a result, Moan was distrusted and more than once was physically threatened with harm. He turned to increasingly heavy drinking alone following this episode, and it's known that around this time Moan also made a written application to be allowed to carry a personal firearm, as was a service person's right at the time, but he discontinued this application when he found out that any weapon would have to be kept in an armoury under lock and key when he was off duty. Moan claimed that he wanted a firearm for his own protection, but subsequent events would cast doubt on this, and it gave quite an insight into where his head was exactly at that time. When his unit was being sent to Libya late in October 1967, Moan was told that instead of travelling with them, he was being sent back to the UK to undergo further training, before an attachment to a different unit. He was left angry, feeling victimised and let down by the army, and by the time he'd arrived back in London before reporting for his new duties, Moan had decided that he actually had no intentions of returning to the army. Instead of heading to barracks to report for his new role, Moan instead headed to a gunsmith's just off Pride Street in West London, where he bought himself a single-barrelled 12-gauge Spanish-made shotgun, and then officially went AWOL. Moan headed back to his home city of Dundee for the last week of October, where he's descended into a cycle of heavy drinking, often beginning the day with just a breakfast bottle of vodka. The rest of his days would be spent flitting between cinemas and cafes, just whiling away the time between the pubs being open. He spent some of this week staying at his grandmother's house, at first having stayed back at the family home, but he had to leave there following a drunken row with his abusive father, which Moan ended by threatening him at gunpoint. He also spent a period of that week sleeping rough, and during that week Moan had also visited several doctor's surgeries throughout the city, describing suffering from anxiety and severe depression. As a result, he'd managed to attain a substantial quantity of prescription medication, albeit mostly painkillers, and on Halloween 1967, Moan decided to put this stash to some use. He checked into the former Mathers Hotel in Dundee's Whitehall Crescent, and after spending some time drinking alone in his meagre room, he attempted suicide by overdosing on the medication that he'd amassed over that week. 
Moan was, however, unsuccessful in this attempt, instead just making himself violently ill. And so with the attempt bungled, Moan carried on his cycle of heavy drinking, brooding more and more about his circumstances and failures, and getting angrier. By the next morning, the 1st of November, Moan had sufficiently recovered enough to find himself that lunchtime in Dundee's White Horse Inn on Harefield Road, which was directly opposite St John's Roman Catholic Secondary School, the very place that Moan had been expelled from only a few years before, and the place that he hated so much because of the unhappy memories that it held for him. According to Moan's later account, that afternoon he made the decision to get a taxi back to the hotel, gather his possessions and return to the army to face his punishment for going AWOL. He left the pub and trudged around trying to hail a taxi, getting soaked to the skin and chilled to the bone doing so, but he couldn't find one. It was then that something snapped in Moan and he stopped and took stock of where he was, staring across at the lights of St John's School opposite. His already smouldering rage built up inside him when he saw where he was, brings back flooding memories of his schooling and unhappiness there, and coupled with his bitterness at how he perceived that life and the army had treated him, his constant anger and depression, and the alcohol in his system, all together meant that Robert Moan was already a short fuse that day. When he couldn't find a taxi, it was the last straw, and he was ready to explode. Moan walked back to the Mathers Hotel, changed his clothes and returned to St John's Roman Catholic School a short time later, now smartly dressed in his Gordon Highlanders private uniform. He also carried with him, wrapped in newspaper, the shotgun that he'd bought in London. Moan spent a short time staring at the building, before he suddenly ran across the road and made his way into the school. With no exact plan of where he was going, he made his way to the top floor of one of the school's annexes and began looking into classrooms there. The first classroom Moan entered was empty, but the second was the school's needlework room, and this one did have a class in it. Thirteen girls were listening intently to their teacher, Nanette Hansen, when their afternoon needlework lesson was interrupted by the unexpected and frightening sight of a stranger, a soldier, armed with a shotgun. Nanette was Yorkshire-born and she was relatively new to the school, having only moved up to Scotland just six months before in the spring of 1967, following her marriage to her husband Guy, a carpet designer in a local factory. In the short time she'd been there, due to a combination of her relatively young age of 26 and her professional level-headed dedication to her job, she'd become well-liked by staff and pupils alike at the school and had already proven herself to be a competent and confident teacher. But that afternoon, Nanette was confronted with something unexpected, unbelievable, and completely out of the norm for a teacher to have to deal with. At least, sadly, at that time anyway, it's probably a bit more common now, I would imagine. A stranger in soldier's uniform was stood in her classroom, brandishing a shotgun. The room fell silent in shock and disbelief and then after a few seconds, one of the pupils nervously laughed, thinking that someone was playing some sort of bizarre joke. I mean, the man holding the gun was baby-faced, and he didn't look too much older than themselves. He wasn't too much older than themselves. Moan showed them just how much of a joke it wasn't in response to this laughter, by firing the shotgun into a glass door, 
which injured another teacher who'd heard the commotion and who'd tried to intervene. He was to admit years later having a feeling of power and control for the first time in his life. Moan then sat on Nanette's desk and began screaming and shouting at the sobbing girls, ordering them to move their sewing tables to barricade the classroom door to the room, before Moan then took several rounds of ammunition from his pockets and began lining it up on the desk, telling the frightened pupils that he would blow their heads off with one wrong move. He asked each girl their age in turn, and when he reached Nanette, who replied that she was 26, Moan laughed and replied, You're just a pensioner. He then wrenched Nanette's glasses off and stood on them, crushing them underneath his boot. When the scared pupils cried too loudly, one by one Moan marched up to them and placed the shotgun to their heads, silencing them through pure fear. Because that will do it, trust me. Many years ago I had a loaded shotgun pointed at myself, and not in a joking manner either, and it proper does tend to make your arse go, I tell you. Ordering everyone into a small changing room at the rear of the classroom, a wild-eyed moan then strode about brandishing the shotgun, gloating that he'd come to the school to gain revenge for his expulsion years before, and especially revenge against one of the Marist brothers in particular that Moan believed had been the worst disciplinarian during his time there. Throughout all of this, Nanette remained calm, speaking softly to the crazed young soldier with a gun, trying to reason with him to let the pupils go and just to keep her as a hostage before anybody else was hurt. Within minutes of the warning shot that Moan had fired, the school was surrounded by police and a state of emergency had been declared after the teacher who'd been injured when the glass door had been blasted out had sounded the alarm. Whilst the other thousand plus pupils were evacuated from the school, three police officers tentatively approached the upper floor corridor but was spotted and shot at by Moan, who shouted to officers that he would turn the gun on the hostages with no hesitation. Leading a 14-year-old pupil to the door with a gun pointed at her head, the increasingly aggressive and deranged Moan showed the police that he was deadly serious in his threats. Back in the classroom, Moan called three of the girls out of the changing room, where he proceeded to then sexually molest two of them, whilst he then told the third to undress, saying, I will count to three and shoot you if you've not taken them down. Moan then raped the unfortunate girl at gunpoint. When he was finished, he then called one of the other pupils out and inexplicably released her. Moan told her before he did to tell police that the only person he would talk to was an old girlfriend of his, Marion Young, who he'd met four years previously at a Dundee youth club, claiming, she understands me. I somehow doubt that she'd understand that, but there you go. Police quickly traced Marion, a trainee student nurse, to her home nearby, and although she was somewhat baffled as to why Moan had asked for her, she agreed to come and negotiate with him without hesitation when she was told of the situation. Just 75 minutes after he'd first entered the school, Marion was face-to-face -face talking to the young man that she now hardly recognised. Moan had eagerly awaited her arrival, washing his face and hair in one of the classroom sinks, tidied himself up, and then sat on the classroom desk gently singing to himself whilst police conveyed Marion to the school. When she arrived, Moan's first words to her were, You thought you were being a brave little girl. How did you know I wouldn't blow your head off? 
How on earth do you answer that when you're dealing with a madman, eh? Both Marion and Nanette then bravely spent the next few minutes gently talking Moan around, trying to calmly defuse the siege and to convince Moan that the scared pupils needed to be released. He seemed almost disinterested in the proceedings really, so Nanette went and led the pupils to the door, where they were let out into the corridor. Once they were clear, every girl ran faster than they ever had before to safety. Nanette, however, was not allowed to leave with them, with Moan saying, not you, you're not going, I want you here. Moan then placed the shotgun down onto the desk and asked for a cigarette from Nanette. When Marion attempted to pick up the shotgun thinking Moan was distracted, he brutally knocked her to the floor and picked up the weapon. He then began ranting and aiming at different parts of the room and each of his captives in turn, all the while asking them, Do you think I can do it? Do you want to be a saint? He pulled the trigger of the weapon several times in turn, including whilst pointed at each woman, but nothing but a hollow click happened. It transpired later that the shotgun Moan had bought had a faulty firing pin, and in so it did not fire each time as it was supposed to. Moan had then instructed Nanette to ensure all of the curtains in the room were tightly closed, expressing fears that a police marksman may have him in his sights. As Nanette shut the last curtain, Moan suddenly took aim and shot her in the back from a distance of just seven feet, watching fascinated as she dropped to the floor. Although she wasn't killed outright, Nanette's injuries from the shotgun were massive. Her spinal cord had been damaged by the blast, and even had she lived, she would have been confined to a wheelchair for the rest of her life. Despite the efforts of Marion using her nursing skills, Nanette looked close to death. Marion pleaded with Moan to allow Nanette to be taken to hospital and Moan told her dismissively that she could now do what she wanted. Police outside in the corridor made the decision to allow ambulance staff in after hearing Marion scream for help and they were allowed in without any conditions. Indeed, Moan seemed to have lost all interest in the entire situation by this time. He sat quietly on the desk with the shotgun on the floor at his feet alternately singing and laughing hysterically in an absolute complete world of his own, as an unconscious Nanette was stretched out of the classroom and onto the Dundee Royal Infirmary. Moan didn't even seem to notice when she was taken, and he offered no resistance when armed police burst in, took him down and handcuffed him. He didn't even seem to care. The pupils who'd been held hostage were all taken to Dundee Royal Infirmary for an examination, and fortunately... Aside from shock and a few minor cuts and scrapes, all were otherwise physically unharmed. But the trauma of something like that, especially to those who Moan had committed sexual offences against also, that must have been something else completely, mustn't it? Sadly, they were to learn whilst at hospital that their beloved teacher Nanette, who bravely tried to protect them all and who'd remained calm and collected throughout the entire siege, had died at the same hospital whilst they were still there. Nanette had never regained consciousness from her injuries and had died with a grieving husband Guy at her bedside. Tragically, it was also revealed later that Nanette had been in the early stages of pregnancy with her first child when Moan had shot her dead. She became link number three in the chain that the episode takes its title from.
After his arrest, Moan was taken to Carstairs, where he spent the next couple of months being examined by psychiatrists. It soon became abundantly clear that Moan didn't care what happened to him from the point that he'd entered the school onwards, and psychiatrists diagnosed Moan as suffering from schizophrenia that had developed insidiously over a number of years, meaning that Moan was thus insane and unfit to plead. He was never to stand trial for the carnage that he committed at the school, as on the 23rd of January 1968, in a hearing lasting just 18 minutes in total, Robert Francis Moan Jr. appeared at the High Court in Dundee and was ordered to be detained without limit of time at Carstairs Hospital by Mr Justice Lord Thompson. When he heard the decision, Moan simply smiled, looked up at the judge and responded cheerfully, Good for you. The two young women who had ensured the safe release of the pupils of St John's School were later commended with a Queen's Honour for Extraordinary Bravery with Marion Young being awarded the George Medal, and Nanette Hansen posthumously receiving the Albert Medal. At her packed funeral in a home village of Ben Ryden in West Yorkshire, which was attended by more than 300 mourners, tribute was paid to Nanette as a heroine, a martyr who died for those children. It's touching and it's perhaps very fitting that from the day Nanette died she was ensured to never be forgotten, as still to this day, 1st of November is marked each year at St John's High School with a special mass in memoriam to Nanette Hansen. Meanwhile, those involved in the atrocity in the classroom that day, after a while learned to live with the memories and trauma of what had happened, and they managed to push the name Moan to the back of their minds. And for a few years, it was in the back of people's minds that the name Robert Moan stayed. In fact, it was more than eight years before the name Robert Moan would explode into the forefront of people's minds again. There are conflicting reports on the exact details of what happened next in his story, and Moan himself paints a completely one-sided version of what was to follow in a series of remarkable letters to author David Leslie, which are a very insightful read, but during research for this episode from multiple sources, the most consistent account is as follows. By 1976, Robert Francis Moan had been a patient at Carstairs for almost nine years and looked a far cry from the clean-shaven young soldier who was sent there in 1968. He was now 28 years old, he was stockily built, and he had long fair hair in keeping with the fashion of the time. Where Moan had once shunned and rejected any kind of education or learning, he had by then settled down to studying, he'd managed to gain three A-level accreditations, and had developed a vested interest in the law. He'd even begun a long-distance law degree with the University of London, and he'd spend hours poring over law books in his room on Carstairs' Tweed Ward, which was at the time considered the Trustee Ward. By his own account, he was still a loner rather than a mixer with others, but he was involved with the hospital's drama group, a project that had been implemented by a new doctor to the ward, John Gotte Loeg, under his new doctor's direction and encouragement, Moan had written a one-act play as a contribution to a BBC Scotland Arts Festival. He'd become a peer tutor, helping educationally challenged patients prepare for the O-levels that they could undertake as part of the implemented Carstairs Education Programme. And he regularly wrote features for the Carstairs Hospital magazine, The State Observer. Reading this as a list of activity and achievement, it would certainly seem to be the resume of a model patient 
one who was responding well to treatment and preparing to move towards being in a different, lower security facility. But Moan's one negative trait was that he developed an obsession and infatuation with a fellow patient two years younger than himself called Thomas Neil McCulloch. 26-year-old McCulloch was a troubled individual with a history of drink and drug abuse, who in May 1970 had been diagnosed by doctors as having a psychopathic personality. Probably not the best collection for someone with such a diagnosis to have, but McCulloch was also an obsessive collector of weapons and a militia enthusiast, and he'd gathered a fearsome arsenal of weapons at the home that he shared with his parents in Park Hall in the town of Clydebank. He'd spend hours poring over the many magazines that he'd amassed on the subjects or cleaning and polishing his many weapons, ensuring that they were properly kept and maintained. And as the events of the night of the 16th of May 1970 would show, he wasn't afraid to use them either. That evening, McCulloch was in the Erskine Bridge Motel in Clydebank, where an argument erupted, by most accounts, over the quality of a sandwich that he'd been served and McCulloch eventually stormed off. That's the official version that was told in court. Moan was to allege later that it was actually in response to homosexual advances that had been made towards McCulloch at the hotel that evening, and already struggling with his own sexual identity, McCulloch had reacted badly to a pass being made at him. He just couldn't cope with it. Heading home, McCulloch then sat and made a tape recording in his bedroom of his intention to return to the premises and embark upon a killing spree, and then arming himself with a revolver, ammunition belts and two shotguns, McCulloch set off back to the hotel. Upon his arrival back there, McCulloch stormed into the hotel kitchen and fired a weapon point-blank at hotel chef John Thompson, hitting him straight in the face. McCulloch then shot hotel manager Lilius Roger in the shoulder on his rampage and then held a dining room full of customers hostage at gunpoint crouched behind an upturned table as a barricade. Following a tense 30-minute siege, McCulloch was overpowered, disarmed and arrested by police who'd entered the hotel, with thankfully no one having been killed during his rampage. Although John Thompson was to require major facial reconstructive surgery as a result of his wounds, and Lilius Roger was never able to work again, all due to her injuries. Found unfit to plead due to his mental state following this episode, McCulloch too was sent to Carstairs without limit of time. Official reports record McCulloch, who was considered as being sly and manipulative by his fellow patients and nursing staff alike, and Moan as forming a friendship there in 1973, after the former was moved to Moan's ward and pretty soon the pair had become inseparable. They dressed exactly the same and wore the same jewellery, they moved around almost as a single unit, they made soft toys together, and before long were known by nursing staff and other patients alike as the Terrible Twins. This deep and close friendship soon graduated to a physical sexual relationship, with McCulloch, although the younger man, reportedly the dominant of the partnership, and by 1976, the two had formed a plan to escape from Carstairs, which McCulloch and Moan spent more than six months preparing for. Now the drama group at the hospital was a bit of a godsend to them, because it provided them with the good cover that they needed, and McCulloch, who'd been a painter and decorator before he'd been incarcerated at Carstairs, 
involved himself with the group alongside Moan. Although he expressed no interest in performing in any productions, McCulloch instead had offered to use his creative skills to help design and build the sets and production props used by the group for a show that was planned for the end of the year. This afforded him the cover and time to fashion a deadly arsenal of weaponry and to collect items that he and Moan thought would be useful for their escape. Everything that was created or stolen was ingeniously concealed behind a false wall that McCulloch had created in a cupboard in the social club in the West Wing. By November 1976, the pair had managed to secretly create in the hospital metal and woodwork shops two wire garrots made from guitar and violin strings and lumps of brass, a fearsome-looking hand axe, several sharp knives complete with belts and sheaths that were even embossed with military symbols and slogans that McCulloch had spent time putting on there, two replica wooden pistols, and a two-and-a-half-foot sword that could be concealed in a length of wood. McCulloch had also managed to fashion a lengthy weighted rope ladder out of sashes of cord and wooden struts, which he concealed in a loudspeaker in the social club, and the pair had managed to steal false beards, moustaches and bits of uniform that were costume props from the drama group. Moan had also used his work on the hospital magazine to good use, and had spent months creating forged identity cards, McCulloch's being a faked building industry of Scotland's apprentice scheme inspector's card, displaying his own picture but in the name of Sean Collins, and moans of photographic identity cards showing the name Thomas Hunt. They'd also managed to amass a torch, two homemade nurses' hats, and £25 in cash that they'd managed to gather through money left by visitors and thefts from other patients. That would be five times its value today, I looked up the other day. On the evening of Tuesday the 30th of November 1976, the pair were ready to make their break. That evening the drama group had met and had just finished reading extracts in the social club from what was to be their next amateur production, John Steinbach's Of Mice and Men, and as the rest of the group were being filtered back to their respective wards, Moan and McCulloch deliberately hung back. Covertly, McCulloch retrieved the escape kit from the hiding places and pulled on a homemade belt containing three knives and the hand axe. Moan had knives hidden in his shirt and his trousers, and by his own account believed that the weapons the pair had would be enough of a visual deterrent to anyone attempting to thwart their escape without being needed to be used. But as you'll see, events were to prove very much otherwise. Shortly after 6pm, Moan and McCulloch entered a large walk-in storeroom in the Carstairs Social Club that contained gardening tools and the scenery and props from the drama group, and where the supervising nursing officer on duty, 46-year-old Neil McClellan, was talking to another patient. Now that other patient happened to be someone that we've already met here on the show, Ian Simpson, the religious double murderer whose story we heard last episode in The Gnome Who Spoke to God. Although he didn't have a toadstool, and most, he still hadn't got his toadstool by 14 years after that. The four men were now the last ones in the social club, everyone else having already been ushered back to their wards. As both Neil McClellan and Ian Simpson turned from their conversation to look at who just walked in, Moan then threw a pot of paint stripper directly into the eyes of Neil McClellan, while McCulloch did the same thing to Ian Simpson. 
The plan was, by Moan's own account, to use the paint stripper that they'd managed to obtain and conceal to incapacitate anyone who offered them resistance, and once they were incapacitated, they'd be then bound, gagged and locked in the store cupboard, thus allowing the remainder of the escape to proceed unhindered. But despite being blinded from the effects of the liquid that had been thrown in their eyes, both Simpson and McClellan fought back ferociously, causing McCulloch to attack Simpson from behind with the axe. He struck him so hard over the head that parts of Ian Simpson's skull were later found entwined in Moan's heavily blood-stained clothing. McCulloch then turned his attentions to Officer McClellan, who Moan was struggling with, wounding him by slashing at him with the axe and stabbing him with one of the homemade knives, shouting to Moan, Get the fucking keys! Moan managed to obtain McClellan's keys by slicing off his belt, but whilst doing so, he noticed the gravely wounded Ian Simpson stirring and reaching for one of the homemade knives that had been dropped in the struggle. Noticing a garden pitchfork that had clattered to the floor in the struggle, Moan picked it up and stabbed Ian Simpson through the chest with it twice, the last time leaving the implement sticking out. The next part of the escape did go as planned, as Moan used Neil McClellan's keys to gain access to the nursing office and from there managed to cut the internal and external telephone lines. With no CCTV at that time, of course, the pair would then have changed into disguises and uniforms and should have been able to make it outside to the external fence without running into any resistance. But before they did this, McCulloch claimed he was going back to get the drama room door keys to lock the door, which by his own account surprised Moan, as this was an aspect of the escape plan that hadn't been discussed, and off he went. It transpired that McCulloch's real reason for going back was for nothing more than to satisfy his bloodlust. Using a larger fire axe that he'd found and was now in possession of, McCulloch then went back to the storeroom and smashed in the heads of both the dying Ian Simpson and dying Officer Neil McClellan with it. He only stopped when the devastation was so complete that it would be apparent to anybody, even at a cursory glance, that both men were very clearly dead. The store cupboard was left looking like a slaughterhouse as the deranged McCulloch even took the time to not just slice off both of Ian Simpson's ears, but he even scalped him, leaving the body parts on a nearby chair before returning to the waiting moan. Ian Simpson, the very person who'd begun the Scottish chain of ten himself with his own actions 14 years before, and nursing officer Neil McClellan, a married father of a son, thus became links number four and five in our chain. Now the badly mutilated bodies would not be discovered for nearly an hour after they were attacked and the nursing officer who found the bodies, John Hughes, was to describe the scene some years later in graphic detail. He said, I found Neil and knew in my heart he was dead as soon as I walked into that room. I bent over Neil and didn't recognise him. I felt a drip on the back of my neck and put my hand to my head. It was Neil's blood dripping off the ceiling. They'd hit him so hard with the axe his blood had sprayed everywhere. His face was blown up with the pressure of the axe and was smothered in blood and fluid. All I could see was bone. The back of his scalp was open wide where they'd used a fireman's axe to slice open his head. I didn't recognise him. 
he didn't have his glasses on, they were broken and on the ground. Then I saw the little tin he used to keep his cigarettes that he rolled himself. They'd cut the back of his belt to take his keys and dropped his tin. That was when it hit me. What a thing that must have been to find, eh? Isn't that the proper stuff of nightmares? Imagine finding a colleague like that. Bloody hell. By that time, McCulloch and Moan had managed to get outside and had used their well-constructed rope ladder to scale the 14-foot outer barbed wire fence. In the darkness, they now found themselves on one of the outer main roads within the Greater Hospital precinct, where it was time to execute the next integral part of the escape plan, gain transport. To this extent, Moan lay down in the middle of the road and posed as an accident victim, whilst McCulloch who was now wearing a false nurse's hat and fake beard, stood waving his torch to signal a passing car to stop. Soon enough, a dark Volvo car did stop, and the driver, a man named Robert McCallum, got out to give assistance to what he believed had been a serious accident. Now, it's very likely, bearing in mind the carnage that had just transpired a short time before, that those steps that McCallum took towards the prone figure lying in the middle of the road would have been the last that he ever took, if it hadn't been for yet another twist in the events of the evening. Moan and McCulloch would have undoubtedly overpowered him, very probably killed him, and took off in his car. But before they could, by chance at that very moment, a police patrol transit van was passing the scene, and also stopped to give assistance. When the patrol vehicle stopped, the two police officers inside, PCs John Gillies and George Taylor, got out and approached the three figures. Upon their approach, Moan jumped up and he and McCulloch launched a ferocious attack on the two policemen. McCulloch still armed with a bloodied fire axe, Moan with a smaller axe and a knife. Whilst the escapees and the police officers struggled, McCallum fled in his car, stopping and alerting a car stairs gatekeeper to what was occurring just a short distance away and getting the alarm finally raised. PC Gillies had sustained serious injuries in the attack, but was ultimately to survive the onslaught. PC Taylor was not so lucky. He did manage to stagger a short distance away from the scene, despite having horrific head and chest injuries, but collapsed and was to die of his wounds shortly afterwards. 27-year-old PC Taylor left behind a wife and four young children, and was to become link number six in the chain. In the space of less than 40 minutes, Moan and McCulloch had hacked to death three people and tried to kill a fourth. But with the alarm now certainly raised, this time McCulloch didn't wait to inflict any more mutilation upon his victims, and instead the crazed pair sped off in the stolen police van, trying to place as much distance as possible between themselves and the hospital. The van sped south down Lampitz Road and onto the A702 heading away from Carstairs with McCulloch driving dangerously and erratically, as it had been many years since he'd last driven a motor vehicle. Meanwhile, Moan tried in vain to operate the police radio in the vehicle to try to find out how much, if any, the authorities knew of their whereabouts now that the alarm had been raised. Moan was himself later to claim, perhaps through bravado, that he was trying to give false information over the radio to try to confuse police as to where the escapees were heading to open a clear escape route for them. So it may have been that due to the distraction of him doing this, 
the icy road conditions, McCulloch's erratic driving, or perhaps a combination of all, but ten miles down the road from Carstairs, the vehicle skidded off the road, ploughed into an embankment, and was totaled. Moan's head bounced off the windscreen of the vehicle, and he lay unconscious for a short time as a result, bleeding and injured. By his own account, he came to hearing McCulloch shouting, Help me with the prisoner, to two passing motorists who'd seen the wrecked vehicle and stopped to give assistance, William Lennon and Jack McElroy. When the two men approached, Moan and McCulloch then brutally stabbed and hacked at both several times, causing severe injuries to each, and bundled both into the back of their own van and sped off. But in what rapidly became a recurring theme, once more McCulloch's poor driving skills were to thwart the pair, getting a good distance clear of the area. McCulloch had driven the van into a field near Roberton, after seeing what he wrongly believed were the lights of a police roadblock ahead. Now the van became stuck in mud here and Moan and McCulloch were forced to continue their escape on foot. Moan stopping to be violently sick and collapsing several times from the concussion he'd received in the earlier crash. Leaving the two captives badly injured but still alive in the back of the van, Moan and McCulloch made their way on foot in the direction of some lights that they saw coming from a nearby farmhouse. On their way they had to wade across a river and Moan collapsed whilst crossing. McCulloch had managed to cross without difficulty, and he hesitated from the bank, looking back at Moan as if deciding whether to help him or whether to just leave him to drown, before stretching out the shaft of the axe for Moan to grab, where he then pulled him to the safety of the riverbank. It later came to light that McCulloch would have equally killed Moan there and then, as opposed to helping him out. Who knows how the minds of madness work. So the terrifying scenario that next took place was as follows. Moan and McCulloch, heavily bloodstained, soaked to the skin and filthy, and still in possession of several dangerous-looking weapons, reached the door of the isolated Townfoot Farm farmhouse and battered on it. When the door was opened, the two escapees burst in, McCulloch struggling with the homeowner in the hallway, while Moan made his way to the living room, where the Craig family who lived there, including four small children, had been watching a St Andrew's Day Scottish music programme. Moan wrenched the telephone from the wall socket and then demanded the keys to the family vehicle. Now, fortunately for the Craigs, Moan and McCulloch showed no inclination to offer any further violence or threats towards them, because once they had the keys, the pair fled in the household car, which was an Austin, the third vehicle that they'd used that night despite still being less than 25 miles from the hospital that they'd escaped from. By this time, police from all over Lanarkshire and the borders were hunting the pair. The alarm had been raised by the gatekeeper at Carstairs following word from the terrified Robert McCallum, and the badly mutilated remains of Ian Simpson and Neil McLennan had also by now been discovered. PC's Gillies and Taylor had been found and rushed to hospital, where PC Taylor had sadly died and the van containing the badly wounded William Lennon and Jack McElroy had also been discovered after the Craig family had raised the alarm. A description of the vehicle that the pair were now travelling in had been circulated, and officers on the A74 soon spotted the stolen vehicle being driven south at high speed. A high-speed pursuit followed, with the stolen vehicle being chased all the way to the Scottish-English border and then beyond. It was just north of the city of Carlisle in Cumbria, more than 70 miles from Carstairs, 
where a police vehicle that was packed with armed officers from Cumbrian police finally rammed the getaway vehicle in an attempt to stop it, causing McCulloch to lose control of a vehicle and crash for the second time that evening. The Austin crashed into roundabout number 43 of the A74 just a few hundred yards further, narrowly missing another vehicle and causing it to stop. McCulloch and Moan shot straight out of the wrecked Austin and ordered the shaken driver of the car that they'd narrowly missed to get out. He complied but managed to grab the ignition keys as he did. Before the pair could take off in the fourth vehicle of the evening, however, they were surrounded by several armed police. Moan was dragged out of the car struggling, still wielding a knife that a police officer received injuries to his hand from when he grabbed the blade in his hand, holding it firmly whilst he restrained Moan. McCulloch, meanwhile, was taken down by two armed officers, still in possession of his fireman's axe. The pair were taken into custody at Carlisle before being returned to Lanark, and one of the bloodiest nights in Scottish criminal history had now come to an end. The three Cumbrian police officers who captured the pair were to later receive a commendation, the Queen's Gallantry Medal, for bravery expressed whilst doing so. In February 1977, three months since the night of carnage in which three people had died so horribly and another three were nearly killed, Robert Moan and Thomas McCulloch appeared at the High Court in Edinburgh, where the horrific account was heard and the fearsome collection of weapons was displayed to the court. Check the show's Instagram page for a picture of them all, by the way. McCulloch admitted killing patient Ian Simpson, nursing officer Neil McClellan and PC George Taylor, while Moan admitted the murder of PC Taylor. The presiding judge, Lord Dunpark, claimed that the murders that the pair had committed that evening were the most deliberately brutal murders that he'd ever dealt with, and made legal history by ordering them to remain incarcerated until the day both died, saying... I will recommend that you are not to be released from prison unless and until the authorities are satisfied, if ever, that you have ceased to be a danger to the public at large. Now this was the first time that natural life sentences had ever been handed down in Scotland, although courts would much later amend the rulings and issue fixed sentences in the cases of the pair. The three months since their escape and recapture had seen both men undergo extensive psychiatric evaluation and according to reports given to Lord Dunpark at the time of the hearing, controversially, as a result of these evaluations, both Moan and McCulloch were found to be sane at the time of the attacks. So the findings raised many questions about Carstairs. Why should either of these men have ever been there at all if they were found to be sane? How had two patients who were both there for serious firearms incidents involving murder and attempted murder managed to obtain so many supplies to facilitate and assist them to escape, and how could they fashion and conceal so many dangerous weapons? The chance wasn't being taken again with either man, and neither was ever to return to Carstairs during their incarceration, McCulloch instead being sent to Peterhead Prison, which was a place unpopular with prisoners due to its remoteness, and Moan being sent to Perth Prison. Both men were now classed as Category A prisoners, the highest risk category that there is. Security and supervisory procedures were completely overhauled at Carstairs following their escape, including the implementation of the two-tone alarm system we've previously mentioned last episode and this one that's still in operation today. 
But the aftermath of the escape was to have yet even more dramatic consequences. Because if what you've already heard wasn't horror enough, and it's pretty up there, isn't it, with some gothic horror, there was more horror yet to come. The name Moan wasn't quite ready to be forgotten by the general public just yet. But perhaps not from the quarter that you'd expect. Skip forward now almost two years to the very start of 1979, Thursday the 4th of January. First thing that morning, Detective Chief Inspector David Fotheringham of Dundee CID was routinely sifting through the daily crime and missing persons reports that are of a routine passed on that are considered as requiring further action, and one report particularly caught his eye. It was a report concerning the disappearance of an elderly Dundee woman, 78-year-old Agnes Robertson War, from her flat at 4B Grey Memorial House in Kinghorn Road in Dundee's Hilltown district. Grey Memorial House was at the time a block of flats on an area of Hilltown known as The Law, or more commonly known as No Man's Land. I'm sure you get the general idea, and I'm not just singling out Dundeeites here, Dundeeites, whatever people from Dundee are known as collectively, I'm not sure, because I'm sure places like this live everywhere. I come from somewhere very, very near to it. You know, rough as a badger's arse places, people there have more legs than teeth, tights are bought going off what size head you want, and everyone looks like Taggart, both men and women. You know the kind of place I mean. The letting regulations at the block stipulated that the flats there could only be rented to female occupants, but the block was liberal and many people, the savoury and unsavoury, came and went as frequent visitors. Miss War was well known throughout the area having lived there all her life, and due to her age and infirmity she was looked out for by other residents. But she hadn't been seen over the new year ever since she was last seen at home on the afternoon of the 29th of December 1978. By the time six days had passed, concerned neighbours who decided to look in on her that day were alarmed to find a flat door open and the gas fire and lights in the living room on full, but with no sign of Agnes anywhere. It was bitterly cold and snowing in Dundee at the time, and it was thought at first that she may have perhaps had an episode and wandered off somewhere and had had an accident. But a check of all local hospitals proved negative, and she was unlikely to have wandered far anyway due to her age and infirmity. So sensing that this didn't seem quite right and something ominous had happened here, DCI Fotheringham ordered a major hunt be undertaken for Agnes, and soon a squad of both uniformed and plainclothes officers swamped the Hilltown area, concentrating the search on the immediate area of Grey Memorial House. Every flat in the block was ordered to be examined and searched thoroughly, even if that meant forcing entry, so one by one the flats were searched, and as people were in in most of them, they cooperated with officers and were only too anxious to help. But no sign of Agnes War was found in any of these. The only flat that no one appeared to be at home in was one on the rear of the ground floor of the block, having curtains drawn on all of the windows and gaining no response from repeated knocking. Late that afternoon, a detective went and forced the ground floor window to gain access and as soon as he'd done so, the unmistakable smell emanating from the property told him that there was a body inside the flat. Making his way into the property, the detective found that he'd entered through the bedroom window. In the fading light, the policeman could just make out the faint outline of an arm hanging from the bed. 
When police entered the scene and it was illuminated, they could appreciate the full horror of what they saw before them. Amongst the empty bottles and beer cans and overflowing ashtrays, laid out on her back on the bed, was the body of a young woman who showed signs of being savagely beaten about the face and neck, and who had both a stocking and an electrical flex cord knotted tightly around her neck. Across from the bed, in partly upholstered armchairs at either side of the fireplace, were the bodies of two other women. Both were elderly, both had again been beaten about the face and neck, and both had stockings knotted tightly around their necks. Each of these women had been bound to the chairs by polythene bags tied at their wrists and ankles, and all three women had clearly been dead for several days. The women in the flat quickly identified as the missing Agnes War, 70-year-old Jane Simpson who was the occupant of the flat, and 29-year-old Catherine Miller, a newlywed of less than two weeks who was known to frequent the Hilltown area on drinking binges. Catherine was positively identified at the scene by a distraught husband, who'd reported her missing when she failed to come home on the 29th of December, just a week after they'd married. He'd been searching in vain for it and fearing the worst when he heard about the police search had gone to the scene. Forensic experts confirmed that Catherine, Agnes and Jane had all been dead for several days, likely since the 29th of December when both Agnes and Catherine had last been seen. Post-mortems revealed that no sign of sexual assault and revealed the cause of death in each case to be strangulation, with closer examination of the bruising to the faces and neck of each woman providing police with what would later prove to be a vital piece of evidence. Each woman had been brutally battered by a killer who'd attacked them with fists alone before strangling them, but the bruising and indentations to the bodies displayed several wounds that were consistent with a killer having worn a prominent ring during the attack. The pattern of this ring was that prominent that forensic scientists managed to make a cast and resin model of the wound imprints that clearly displayed an impression of the ring and that could be used as a comparison to any ring that was found on a suspect who was arrested. Catherine Miller, Jane Simpson and Agnes War then became links 7, 8 and 9 in our Scottish chain of 10. One of the largest murder hunts in Dundee police history immediately got underway and the local press had a field day reporting on the hunt for the triple killer who was christened the Grey Memorial Strangler. Each of the women's backgrounds was looked into to determine anyone who may have wished them harm. Everyone in the area was questioned and I mean every person who even had the most tenuous of connections with each of the women was spoken to and the clientele of every betting shop, cafe and public house in the area was spoken to on visits by detectives. But it was early on in the series of interviews that detectives came across someone who was to soon become their prime suspect. One of the first people to be interviewed was the middle-aged nephew of the murdered Agnes War, whose disappearance led to the launch of the triple murder hunt. Auntie Aggie's nephew was a man by the name of Robert Christopher Sonny Moan. The very same Robert Christopher Sonny Moan, who was the abusive hard-drinking father of one Robert Moan Jr., who by that time was serving a whole life sentence at Perth Prison for the horrific crimes that we've already heard chapter and verse about earlier on this episode. 
52-year-old Sonny Moan, as he was most commonly known, was a detested figure in the area. I've already said how he was no stranger to abusing his family, particularly his son Robert, but his bullying and violent ways were not just kept within the confines of his immediate family. He had a lengthy criminal record that had begun many years before as a small-time housebreaker and petty thug, and by that time had moved up to serious assaults. He was quick to anger and even quicker to resort to violence, especially after drinking, so this was a regular occurrence as Sonny was a heavy drinker. He was a small, slight man, but as with so many who have small man syndrome, he was a thoroughly nasty piece of work who didn't care if he used violence towards men or women, young or old. Part of this tough guy routine was to swagger around town like the big I am, picking fights with anybody who even looked at him the wrong way usually as is the style of bullies, with somebody smaller than him. He was also very fond of showing off the shit tattoos that he was covered in, mostly inked in one of his frequent spells in prison. And amongst his favourites were the initials IHS, which were emblazoned across his chest, representing in his service, a reference to the devil, as Moan loved to tell people. He also had on him, I'll walk where angels fear to tread classy but his absolute pride and joy were the letters tnt which he had emblazoned across his penis so firstly ouch secondly why and thirdly surely the letters twat would have been much more fitting for this joker what a waste of an orgasm he sounds following the episode if you head over to the show's instagram account there'll be pictures of this clown up there and you can see how hard you reckon he looks To be honest with you, he doesn't. It's not impressive at all. All of this, the way he was, was part of Sonny Moan's big act to try to pass himself off as a big shot amongst the Dundee criminal element and someone who was to be respected and feared. He was actually more despised rather than feared, but he still reveled in this opinion that he instilled in people anyway. He also reveled in the notoriety of the crimes that his son had committed and would regularly bend the ear of anybody he came across each night whilst out drinking, who'd find themselves stuck with Moan, speaking almost longingly of his pride and affection for his son, who he referred to as the Carstairs Killer, as if he hoped it would leave people in awe and how much he wanted to join him in prison. In fact, he'd said words to this effect on the afternoon of the 29th of December 1978, the day Agnes was last seen. Sonny Moan had been in the Venel public house just around the corner from the scene of the triple murder that afternoon and had been a troublesome customer, drunk and spoiling for a fight, as usual, threatening anybody who complained about his behaviour with violence. Throughout all of his drunken ramblings, one message was clear. He was obsessed with his son's crimes. He'd ranged from one moment speaking longingly of his pride and admiration for Robert Jr., who he considered to be a somebody, to the next moment boasting that what his son had done was actually small fish, and that he himself would one day become more infamous than his son. He would make sure of it. Questioned by murder squad detectives concerning his movements that day, Moan admitted readily that he'd been in Jane's flat that afternoon with Jane, Catherine Miller and another man, 22-year-old Stuart Hutton, who was known in the local community as Billy Rebel, and who was a drinking acquaintance of Moan, Jane and Catherine. Moan claimed that the two men had left the pub at afternoon closing time and had taken a carry-out of alcohol to Jane's flat, having a drinking session there until late afternoon, 
when Moan had then left the flat to go and get fresh supplies, but hadn't bothered returning. When Hutton was questioned about this, he told police a similar story, except that he claimed it was he who had departed the flat to get more supplies of alcohol. In fact, Hutton had never returned to the flat, instead spending the £2 in cash that he'd been given by Moan to get more alcohol in a betting shop. He claimed that he had a strange feeling about the atmosphere in the flat that day, and he wasn't anxious to return there, knowing Moan's character traits when he'd been drinking. Police were able to corroborate Hutton's story through checks at the betting shop where he claimed to have been, and he was satisfactorily alibied for the remainder of the afternoon. Robert Moan Sr. was now the prime and obvious suspect to police. He was admittedly there in the flat at the crucial time, and was the last person admitted to have seen the three women alive. He was known to be violent to men and women, he lied about his movements that afternoon, and perhaps most importantly, he boasted that he would one day be more famous than his son. Had he killed three women, one more than his killer son and namesake, in some sick game of anything you can do, I can do better? Bone Sr. was questioned at length by murder squad detectives over several days, and although he never admitted the murders, he never denied them either. Instead, with his usual swagger and bravado, he hinted that he knew more than he was saying about the crimes, and all he seemed to be concerned with was talking about his infamous son. He'd bring up the Carstairs killer at every opportunity he could. But even then, this came across as less of concern for his son and a gesture of fatherly love, and more to bolster his own status as a hard man. He told one police officer, I visit him, but there's a glass partition between us and two screws there. I don't care for the fucking jungle outside no more. All I live for is to be in there with him. If I was there, I'd see that he gets everything that's going. Pills, booze, anything, the lot. Whilst he was being interviewed, detectives looked to see if Moan wore a ring with a prominent face, but he never did during any of his interviews. Regardless of this, police still believed that they had the killer sat in front of them and then they had a breakthrough. Inquiries around his regular haunts revealed that Moan did indeed have a prominent ring that he was often seen wearing, a silver band with a large jade stone embedded in the centre. It had ironically belonged to his son Robert Moan Jr., who had gifted it to his father when he was sent to Perth prison after the Carstairs breakout, as he was prohibited from wearing it after being transferred to the prison system. If detectives could find that ring, they could try to match it against the casts made from the bruises on each of the murdered women's faces. A search warrant detailing the description of the ring and its importance as evidence in the case was issued, and Moan's house, his sister's house, and even his estranged wife's house in Glasgow were all searched looking for it, however it wasn't found. During all this activity, Moan Sr. went about his routine apparently unconcerned and unfazed, he hadn't been charged with anything, so he continued being as much of a scumbag as ever, and he'd even taken a trip to Perth Prison to visit the son who he was so obsessed with. Although the evidence against Robert Moan Sr. as a killer was circumstantial at best, an agreement between the police, the Dundee Procurator Fiscal and the Crown Council in Edinburgh was made that there was a borderline case to prosecute him. It was two weeks after the discovery of the murders on the 18th of January 1979 
that Crown prosecutors agreed to issue an arrest warrant for Robert Christopher Moan Sr., as it was decided that the public interest in the case was so great, an attempt had to be made to convict the prime suspect. So the warrant was duly issued, and Robert Moan Sr. was arrested later that afternoon in the street near his home at 93 Glenprosen Terrace. When arrested, Moan was wearing the very ring that police had searched so long for. He was charged with three murders that day and was remanded in prison to await trial. On Monday the 28th of May 1979, Robert Christopher Moan Sr. stood trial at the High Court in Dundee, charged with the murders of Agnes War, Jane Simpson and Catherine Miller, to which he pleaded not guilty. It was alleged in court that Moan, already feeling the effects of alcohol on the afternoon of the 29th of December 1978, had decided to visit his aunt's house to continue drinking when the pubs had closed, along with Stuart Hutton. His aunt wasn't at home, so the pair had visited the flat of Jane Simpson, who lived along the corridor from his aunt and who was a drinking acquaintance of Hutton. Catherine Miller was already at the flat and the foursome had had a drinking session. Hutton had then left ostensibly to obtain more alcohol, but had not actually returned, leaving Moan alone there with Jane and Catherine. It was alleged that at some point, Moan had killed Catherine and Jane, and had then been along to his aunt's flat down the corridor, and had callously and evilly brought her back to Jane's flat. Inside, she was beaten and tied to an armchair, then strangled. And why had Moan decided to kill all three? It was alleged to have been a predetermined plan to purely surpass his son's infamy, and he didn't care who he was killing, even his own flesh and blood, just as long as he killed more than his son. Two in the flat wasn't enough, he needed a third to beat his son, and his father's half-sister, his Auntie Aggie as she was known, lived along the corridor. She would do, and he would finally be the somebody that he wanted to be now. There's no words for something like that really, is there? How can anybody be so callous and so misguided? Pure evil doesn't even come close to it, does it? Aside from the substantial but compelling circumstantial evidence that we've already heard pointing Moan out as the killer, the linchpin of the prosecution evidence was the ring that had been passed from killer son to father. The cast of the wound imprints that had been made at the time forensic scientists had discovered the unique marks when they examined the bodies of the three women had been compared with the ring that Moan had been wearing when he was arrested on the 18th of January, and they were found to be a perfect match. Crucially, traces of blood group A, the same group as that of Agnes and Catherine, were also found on it upon examination. And if that wasn't persuasive enough, one of the trial witnesses was to produce a sensational moment that proved to be damning. Moan's daughter... 15-year-old Roseanne told the court when in the witness box that her father had loaned her the ring the previous year after she'd expressed admiration for it, but he demanded it back from her after a short time. When asked why this was, she replied through tears, My dad said it was useful to wear in a fight. This is the type of person we're talking about. Get the Fritzl Award for being dad of the year. After a trial lasting seven days, it took just 75 minutes for a jury to decide Moan Senior's guilt by majority verdict in each of the crimes that he was accused of, 
and Moan was typically unflinching, unemotional and cocky to the very end. Passing the mandatory life sentence upon him, Lord Robertson told Moan, You've been convicted of what I can only describe as a terrible crime. In view of the enormity of the crime, I shall make a recommendation that you serve a minimum of 15 years. Moan replied, Would you mind backdating it, eh? Cocky and aggressive to the last, he then struggled with the police constable taking him down to the cells to begin his life sentence, assaulting him and threatening, Get your fucking hands off me. There was no hint of madness here, like his son. This one was just pure evil and as sane as you like with it. Moan Sr. appealed the conviction the following year, but this appeal was rejected because, quite rightly, he was a murdering bully and had been quite rightly convicted of his horrific crimes. No get-out-of-jail card for you, Moan, you scum-sucking mutant. You're exactly where you belong. Sent to the now-closed Craig Inch's prison in Aberdeen, Moan was never to be imprisoned with a son that he claimed ultimately to love and miss, and then to want to gain one-upmanship on. They were kept strictly apart, authorities thinking that the pair between them had already caused more than enough bloodshed, let alone ever placing them together in prison. Moan Senior's prison life mirrored pretty much his outside life. He was still a wannabe hard man and bullying scumbag, and he soon became as detested inside prison as much as he had been on the outside. He began practicing yoga and would regularly show off his physical fitness by doing shoulder push-ups or hanging by his feet from a beam 10 feet above a concrete floor with his arms folded. Ever the bully, he also preyed upon the younger and smaller inmates to satisfy his perverted sexual appetites. But Robert Christopher Moan Sr. was never to reach the heights of infamy more than his son did, despite being convicted of one more murder than his son was. On the 2nd of January 1983, just three and a half years into his life sentence, Robert Christopher Moan Sr. was stabbed to death in the prison workshop by a fellow inmate, 39-year-old Anthony John Curry, who butchered him in a brawl with two prison-made knives in an echo of the bloodshed that his son had been part of several years before. Moan died as a result of several stab wounds to the neck and the head, but no one was particularly shocked that such a nasty piece of work met such a violent end, and even less people really cared. Even his son expressed little remorse, and the inmate who killed him, who received eight years on top of his sentence for the killing, described him as probably the most obnoxious person in the country. From the sounds of it, he was up there with the best of them, wasn't he? And Robert Christopher Moan Sr., the slight little bully with the comb over, the chip on his shoulder and the tattooed wanger, became link number 10 to round out the Scottish chain that has formed these two episodes. With him dead, having arguably paid the ultimate price for his crimes, what happened to the other two main players in the entire drama, Thomas McCullough and the person at the epicentre of it all, Robert Francis Moan Jr.? In 2002, new laws under the European Convention on Human Rights meant that the whole life sentences that were issued to Moan and McCulloch in 1977 could now be reviewed. Moan had the punishment element of his sentence set at a 25-year tariff, and McCulloch's was set at 30 years, so both would have become eligible for possible parole by the time of the new laws. By 2005, however, McCulloch was still incarcerated, but was studying for a law degree and had become a trained counsellor, 
helping other inmates through their personal issues. His prisoner's category status was downgraded, and moves to begin preparing him for eventual release were put into place. He was moved to an open prison, Her Majesty's Prison Castle Huntley, and was allowed regular unsupervised trips out into the community, having more than a 100 in total, during which McCulloch even began a relationship with a 48-year-old divorcee, Susan Perry. But public feeling about the horrific crimes that he and Moan committed still runs high, and an attempt for a release into the community in 2010 stalled when attempts to rehouse him in Dumbarton were abandoned when locals threatened to lynch him after the identity of their potential new resident was leaked. He was eventually released on life licence in May 2013, going on to marry Susan Perry and settling down to a new life in Dundee, much to the disgust of the families of his victims, opposition from senior government figures, and several scenes of angry public protest. The son of nursing officer Neil McClellan, who Moan and McCulloch butchered during the breakout from Carstairs in 1976, echoed this public opinion and became somewhat of the spokesperson for the victims' families. He said, Life should be life. He was sentenced to die in jail and I don't see why that should have changed. He gets another chance, but there's three people in the cemetery who won't get that chance because of what they did. And Robert Moan Jr., the person who is at the centre of all of the horror that's been described here, is still incarcerated to this day. He is now nearly 71 years old and has become Scotland's longest serving prisoner, despite at one time looking like a release was on the cards for him. In fact, preparations for his release were being made from Her Majesty's Prison Glenochill in 2011, even to the extent that he was allowed out on several day releases but authorities held off on plans for his full release after concerns were raised about his behaviour and the possibility that he was using these releases to make outside preparations for yet another prison escape. It's fair to say that he's been involved in several incidents over the many years that he's been incarcerated now that would suggest that the distinction of being Scotland's longest serving prisoner is a deserved moniker, with him still periodically appearing in the news even to this day. In 1981 his name was amongst those involved in a destructive rooftop protest at Perth Prison and in 1995 Moan had six months added onto his life sentence for attacking a fellow prisoner with a mixture of boiling water and sugar. He still maintains hope that he'll be paroled and released on life licence imminently, more so now that his partner in crime McCulloch has been freed and Moan has even changed his name to James Smith now. He believes that strongly that release is imminent for him. Reports of the inroads Moan is making from prison to convince the parole board that he's rehabilitated and ready to rejoin society are widespread, but there are many who still believe that Moan is still as evil to this day, and that life should mean exactly that in his case. Extracts from letters to a pen friend of his were made public a few years ago, in which he discusses his plans upon release, but Moan never once mentions having any regrets for his actions or sorrow for the victims of his crimes. In fact, even boasting of how up to 540 people in total were left traumatised directly by the shockwaves from his crimes, even sickeningly awarding his victims points for their anguish. In 2015, Moan even went so far as to describe in his own words the events of the escape from Carstairs in 1976 in a series of letters to journalist David Leslie 
which give a detailed recollection of the events of the Carstairs escape from Moan's own perspective. Now these letters made it into a book entitled Carstairs Hospital for Horrors, which is a highly recommended read and quite a unique insight not only into the workings of a high-security hospital and its history, but for a unique account of events from the perpetrator's perspective, as opposed to just a researched comprehensive account. It's been an invaluable source in creating the Carstairs trilogy here on the show, and we still have an episode to go yet. Now you'd have to read it really yourself. I thought the account is comprehensive and it's eloquently written, but even in this account, I did think that Moan was quick to pin the blame for everything almost entirely upon McCulloch, and he paints a picture of himself being an accomplice only really under duress. It is a highly recommended read though, and the accounts of the escape from Carstairs in 1976 have been partly sourced from the book, at least the parts that can be authenticated by multiple sources and not just relying on the account of Robert Moan alone. That name still to this day more than 50 years since he committed the horrific murder that introduced his name to the annals of infamy creates widespread public opinion, largely of fury and anger. Many believe that he will never be safe to be released from custody and even more believe that he deserves to languish in prison until the day he dies paying for his horrific crimes. In 2007, one of the schoolgirls that Moan held at gunpoint the day in 1968 that he murdered Nanette, Anne Darcy, spoke out about that afternoon and her opinion of Robert Moan. In an interview with a Scottish newspaper, she said, His face has always haunted me. There isn't a day that goes by when I don't think of him. The memory of him pressing the gun to my head flashes through my mind. He fired the gun, I heard him pull the trigger. I found out later that the pin missed and it didn't fire a bullet. He didn't think how he was destroying the lives of 14-year-old girls. He didn't care. He should never, ever be released. It's in him to kill again. Former nursing officer at Carstairs and the officer who found the mutilated bodies of Neil McLennan and Ian Simpson, John Hughes, said of Moan and McCulloch, Moan is still feeding off the past. He remembers every tiny detail of that day. He gets pleasure from it. I haven't forgotten that day because I was left traumatised. But Moan and McCulloch are like a couple of vultures feeding off the carcass of what happened in 1976. They will never change, ever. You cannot rehabilitate these people to go back amongst human beings. People like them cannot be cured. And the son of nursing officer Neil McCallan also gave his opinion of Moan. He said, I've lived with the consequences of what happened since 1976. It's completely altered the life my mother and I would have had. Moan is telling the story that he's been led along and that he was not the main player in this and is still inside. He's got to convince the parole board that he's safe to be released and that he's remorseful, but he is only sorry that he got caught. So what do you think then all? What do you think about the release of one of the Carstairs axe killers, Thomas McCulloch? And should Robert Moan ever be released as McCulloch has? Or does he still present as much of a danger to the public as he did more than 50 years ago now? Now these are some of the most horrendous crimes that I've ever covered on the show. And aren't these three of the most evil individuals that you've ever heard about? 
Whereas many people believe Ian Simpson, the fantasy world-dwelling Bible-thumping double murderer, is the most remarkable patient ever to have been in Carstairs, personally I believe the most infamous name to ever be connected with it is that of Robert Moan. Thomas McCulloch committed equal horror there during the escape, granted, perhaps even more so if the accounts are to be believed. I mean, bloody scalped someone and cutting off his ears, for Christ's sake. But it's the crimes connected with the name Robert Moan, both Robert Moan Jr. and his evil dad, that surpass all of this and that always come to the forefront when Carstairs is mentioned. For many years afterwards, the 1976 escape was referred to as The Incident, and it's likely still the most infamous episode ever to be associated with a place, even so many years later, and after so many millions spent and so many security measures and systems implemented to ensure something of that magnitude never happens again. Let's hope that it never does. So, George Green, Hans-Rudy Gimme, Nanette Hansen, Ian Simpson, Neil McClellan, George Taylor, Agnes War. Catherine Miller, Jane Simpson and Robert Moan Sr. There is your Scottish chain of ten and it's one hell of a story that in total isn't it? It's certainly one of the most remarkable and horrific that I've ever come across in my many years of being a true crime enthusiast. How two of the chain, responsible for more than half of the links between them, both ended up becoming links of it themselves, Simpson and Moan Sr. It's a remarkable story. But so much tragedy and violence involved, I mean, sheer carnage and horror really, and all for nothing. For no gain whatsoever in any of the cases, just madness, bloodlust, and even wannabe infamy or one-upmanship. How the hell is that even a real reason? I know it is a bit of a loose connection for the ten, but it is a connection nonetheless, and I thought both parts could be tied to Carstairs as well, hence the inclusion in the trilogy. And this is where I explained my earlier comment at the start of the episode about this one possibly sounding like deja vu, something that you may have heard on another show. I actually wrote the story of the crimes of the Moans and McCulloch, similar to the tale that you've heard here, as an episode for Adam at the UK True Crime Podcast about a year and a half ago now, long before I started doing the True Crime Enthusiast podcast of my own. Now I've always thought this an absolutely fascinating tale and it was one that I wanted to revisit now that I have my own show. Where I concentrated before upon the Moans and the McCulloch angles previously, this time I had a bit of a further think and I've encompassed Ian Simpson's crimes into the tale also to create the Scottish chain of 10 episodes that form the first two of the Carstairs trilogy. I do always make efforts to cover different cases to those covered by the other UK true crime podcasts and most of the time it works due to the cases that I choose unless you have drones looking up at you as well. Person uh, I know, listen, we'll get that. But of course, sometimes shows are going to overlap on cases and it was a while back that I did this one for Adam but because I'm a cautious guy, I did ask him and it was all squared away with him about me using the Moan episode which I got to do with full blessing because. He's a hell of a guy is Adam, well for a Leeds fan he is anyway. I've changed it somewhat in parts because I did do that one quite happily for UK True Crime. So it's not ripped off, it's sharing stuff about in our good old True Crime community and special thanks there to Adam for allowing me to use it. And next week to round off the Carstairs trilogy we shall meet a couple more of the patients to have ever been hospitalised there over the years. 
with tales of some more truly shocking events that I look forward to bringing you next episode. I hope that you found this one both informative and entertaining and I would love as ever to hear your thoughts in the True Crime Enthusiast podcast Facebook discussion group about the Scottish Chain of 10 episodes. You guys know the scores on the doors and where to find it by now I'm sure. You would not believe how talked out I am after this lot and when I started recording it as well I was just on the basis of having a sore throat as well and I was thinking as I was writing it oh god I've got to record and edit this yet absolute bane of a podcaster's life i tell you so i'm wrapping it up now and getting off thank you so much for joining me for such a complex and in-depth tale guys you all rule for sitting down and giving me the patience i'll catch you next week to round off the Carstairs trilogy on the show and until we speak i've been and still am paul the true crime enthusiast wishing you guys all happy and safe times and i'll speak to you very soon cheers all take care and goodbye for now